6, which can be found on page 1012 in the Blue Bibles. Starting at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, by faith itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you this morning. I'm Sully. Uh, Thanks, Kate, for reading our passage for us. I recently read a book called Liturgy of the Ordinary. Uh, Maybe you've uh, seen this book. It's uh, fairly popular. It's by Tish Harrison Warren. It's it's a great book. I highly recommend it uh, to you. Uh, But there's an interesting story surrounding the book. Uh, The book was published maybe a year or so ago, and uh, when it began to get popular, someone came along and had the brilliant idea that they would make their own copy of the book. And they started selling it on places like Amazon and other online uh, retail sites and ended up selling a whole lot of these fake copies of the book. It's said that uh, it cost, these fake copies of the book, cost the publisher and the author nearly a quarter of a million dollars in sales. Quite a lot. It was actually really hard to tell the difference between the actual real copy and the fake copy of the book. Well, once people started to begin to realize that there were these fake copies being sold, they started to send their fake copies back and order the real copy. This is just one example among many of people fighting back against fake products or fake experiences. This, this past week, Laura and I's favorite TV show is, is Madam Secretary. Uh, Madam Secretary, she saves the world every week. It's a pretty idealistic TV show. Uh, but we like it. And, and this past week, they did an, uh, an episode on the issue of what they call deep fake videos. These videos that portray people doing things that they never did or saying things that they never said. You can imagine how detrimental this can be to someone's reputation, especially in a political campaign. Well, they, uh, they're hard to distinguish between the fake videos and the true videos. We live in a world where I think we have this growing desire for authenticity, a growing desire for real experiences, authentic relationships, authentic products and, and uh, 
What we realize, though, is that it's becoming harder and harder to find authenticity. Today in our text, James, the author of our letter, is, is actually causing us to, to think a little bit about authenticity. And he doesn't want us to settle for inauthentic faith, fake faith. He calls, he calls it dead faith, useless faith. He wants us to see that true faith is far better. So thankfully, unlike deep fake videos, it's easy to distinguish between dead faith and real faith. So today, if you have, if you have true saving faith, I, my prayer is that as you leave today, as you walk out of here, that, man, you would, you would just feel so encouraged, so thankful, overwhelmed with gratitude that God has given you an incredible gift of true faith, that you would be confident that you have saving faith. And for others, though, this morning, I, I hope that, that your desire for the authentic, the true faith, would, it would grow this morning as we look at the text before us that you would see the, the uselessness of dead faith. So faith, saving faith is far more productive, far more powerful, so don't settle for anything less. As we get started, would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, life is too urgent and too important to mess around with fake, inauthentic things. So Father, we come before you this morning and we ask that you would help us, help us as we look at your scriptures today. Too often we settle for things that are similar to the real deal, but are not the real thing. Help us not to settle for anything less than true, reliable, saving faith. Show us today the beauty and the power of authentic faith. And I ask now, Lord, that you would guard my lips, that I would not speak anything that is not true and from your word. Strengthen us, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, at, at the outset of our time together this morning, I, I, I need to make something really clear. Uh, people have read this uh, passage of Scripture throughout history, and they've made some wrong conclusions about it. Uh, here, James is giving us a lesson in contrast, but it may not be the contrast that you initially think of. Too often people read this passage and they think, James is teaching us uh, the contrast between being saved by works and being saved by faith. Really, though, that's not what James is doing at all. James is giving us a lesson in contrast between what is true faith and what he calls dead faith. He isn't contradicting Paul, who taught us that we are saved by faith alone. He is actually not contradicting that at all, but actually uh, reinforcing that idea by actually explaining that the type of faith that saves us is the faith that's alive, the faith that transforms us. So as we look at our text today, we want to ask the question, though, why, why is James so concerned with us being able to distinguish between the two, between dead faith and true faith? Well, if we just scan a few verses uh, up in our text for, in chapter 2, in verses two, 12 and 13, we begin to see why James is so urgent for us to understand this. We'll look at verse 12 and 13. Uh, James wrote, So speak And so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James is is calling his reader to live in a certain way because a day is coming when all that is inauthentic, all that is fake, is going to be exposed. A day of judgment is coming. 
For us, that means that on that day, the the fake, inauthentic faith will be exposed for the fraud that it is, and the true, the good, the authentic on that day will be on full display in full beauty. So James realizes he wants you to understand the difference between saving faith and dead faith because on that day of judgment, what stands in the balance is your salvation. So I know that it's an important question that we need to wrestle with ourselves. Uh, So as we look at our text today, I want to ask one simple question. The question is, how can you know that you have true saving faith? To answer that question, James takes us in a couple of different directions. He first gives us this provocative question about our faith in verses 14 through 17. And then he challenges us to prove our faith in verses 18 and 19. And then finally, in verses 20 through 26, he gives us two examples of people who had true faith. So as we try to answer this question, how can you know that you have true saving faith? I want to give you four characteristics of true saving faith. Two things that it's not, and two things that it is. So as we look uh, at our text, start back with me at verse 14. And try to pick up on the provocative question that James is asking here. Verses 14 goes like this. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James has a way of of kind of winding around to different topics. You may have, you know, we've been in this, uh, this book for a couple of weeks now, and it may seem like, wow, we're jumping from different topic to different topic. But really, James is, is going back. He sometimes has a circular logic. He returns to different ideas throughout his book. But he does give us some help, helpful hints as to when he's moving from one topic to another. And one of those hints that he's moving on from a topic is that he addresses his audience. Here he says, what good is it, my brothers? He addresses those that he's writing to. And my brothers would have referred to all of his readers, all of those who had been hearing this book uh, read out loud. So both the men, the women, and the children. He's calling, calling us, hey, pay attention for a second. I got something different to tell you. And here he grabs our attention with this question. He says, what good is dead faith? What good is it? What good is faith that does not manifest itself in action? He starts with that question and actually ends this little section with it as well in verses 16. You notice, if you look back, he actually asks it twice. What good is that type of faith? Well, he he doesn't just put forward this question. He gives us an illustration so that we might know the answer to his question. The illustration is, is that of a person who sees a brother or sister who's in need, lacking in clothing, lacking in food, and simply wishes them well. Sees them and says, go in peace. I hope you find what you're looking for. I think this illustration may hit a little too close to home for some of us who commute to work down to the loop and back, and every day we pass by people who are in need. And isn't it, it's just too easy to pass by them, uh, not even stopping to acknowledge them, let alone stop and, and wish them well, as this person has. James is making the point that faith that simply is only words, is actually dead faith. It does nobody good. He makes his point really explicit, really clear in his final verse here, 17. He says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
Think of it this way. Uh, There are people who are activists. Maybe think of someone who's a a climate activist, someone who wants to see the nature protected, see the world protected, the planet protected, and they protest, they they speak on this topic, and yet they go around driving a gas-guzzling car. They don't recycle and they waste water. There's someone that you look and you're like, gosh, none of what you say is doing anyone any good. All this stuff that you're advocating for, it's, uh, you're not even living it out. Your beliefs, your convictions are doing nobody good. They're not, those convictions aren't producing anything that is helpful. So also, faith that does not lead to action is, is useless. It does nobody good. It's dead faith. Now, before you begin to, to wonder whether James is trying to argue here that somehow you're saved by your works and not by faith, let me, let me pause you there for a second. Because I want you to really pay close attention to the contrast that he's drawing here for us. He's drawing a contrast between faith that is simply words that does nobody good and true living faith, faith that moves us to action. We can notice this contrast by the language he uses in verse 14. Look back at verse 14. I want you to see this. He asks the question, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Here he he explicitly tells us that he's referring to that type of faith, that faith that does nothing, that faith that simply wishes people well but doesn't actually do anything to help them. He's He's not trying to say, can faith, period, save us? No, he's saying, can dead faith save us? And his answer is clear. No, it can't. So, to our big question, how, how can you tell whether you have the real deal? How can you know that you've got this saving faith and not the fake dead faith? Well, here in this illustration, we're told that real faith, the real deal, won't just simply be words that we say to people. It'll actually produce action in us. It won't just cause us to feel compassion, but it'll cause us to act out of compassion. So, question for you. What's your faith producing? Is it producing more than mere words? I know that it's kind of a provocative and personal question to ask you, but it's your salvation that hangs in the balance. And so I must ask the question, I must plead with you to think about it and to answer honestly. Is your faith producing anything other than just words that you say? James doesn't just stop here with, with these, this question. He really wants you to wrestle with it. Today, we live in a, what we would call a post-Christian culture, a, a culture that isn't any longer a, a pre-Christian culture, uh, one that hasn't been influenced by a Christian worldview. We live in a post-Christian culture, which means that our culture has been so integrated with words that are Christianized and ideas that are Christianese, and we've, we've ended up being able to say things and live in a way that actually isn't truly living out of faith, but is actually just living according to our culture's norms. What what I'm trying to say here is that I don't want you to be mistaken to think that you have true faith if all you do is affirm a few things and say things here and there. It's really easy, I think, to go about living with this fake type of faith, saying the right things. But really what we need to see is that true faith is far more powerful than that and far more uh, transformative in our life. 
James goes on into this next section with a challenge to us. He has asked this provocative question, but he now challenges us to prove our faith by our actions. Here he says uh, in verse 18, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Here, James does something typical that's typical found in, uh, typically found in ancient argumentation. He sets up an imaginary conversation partner and then has a debate with them. Here, his imaginary conversation partner says that he believes that, that faith and action don't always have to coincide with one another. You see, he says, he will say, you have faith and I have works. What he means by that is that these things, faith and action, don't always have to be one and the same. They don't actually always have to appear together. James, though, says this, this is foolish talk. He, he actually challenges his fake imaginary conversation partner by saying, show me your faith apart from work. Show me that you have true, authentic faith without doing anything. Good luck with that, he pretty much says. For him, he says, let me show you that I do have true, authentic faith by my actions, by how I live. I know that he's making this challenge to his imaginary conversation partner, but it is a challenge that probably we should hear as well. That if we are people who think that, yeah, it's just simply ideas that we affirm or words that we speak, well, here's a challenge for you. Prove that you have true, authentic faith without trying to use actions. It's, it's impossible. But yet, you can tell that someone has true, authentic faith by how they live and how they act. Here in verse 19, he begins to make this argument that, that our faith, true, authentic faith, is, is more than just ideas that we affirm. He says to his, his imaginary conversation partner, he says, uh, you believe that God is one, you, you do well. This is a good belief. But even the demons believe and shudder. In other words, you can have all the right ideas, all the right doctrine, and still not have true authentic faith. Your faith would be as good as the faith of a demon. That's pretty stark. Now, here, this idea that faith is more than simply words we say and ideas that we affirm, it's not a new idea in in the book of James. Back in chapter 1, verse 22, James has these famous words that he says. He tells us, Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once and forgets what he was like. James has been consistently throughout his book been making this argument that true, authentic faith will produce fruit. It'll actually produce in us a a new way of living. True faith will actually cause us to be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. True faith is far more powerful than simple ideas or beliefs. It's a a power that transforms us. True faith can't be manufactured by simply reading enough systematic theology books. True faith can't be downloaded like data data. True faith can't be obtained by sitting in a right classroom. No, the type of faith that's authentic, that's real, that actually produces fruit, is a faith that's a gift from God. Ephesians 2.8 says that, For by grace you have been saved, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, 
not a result of works. James is not saying that you can obtain true faith through good works. He is not saying you are saved by your works. What he is saying is that true saving faith can't be separated from action. So going back to our, our big question we're asking, how can you know that, you, that we have true saving faith? Well, we, we know by looking at what our faith produces. Does it produce more than words that we say and more than doctrine or ideas that we affirm? James now takes us to two examples of people who had saving faith. And these examples will actually see two things that true faith is. He transitions in the passage in verse 20 with this question. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? I think James is pretty fired up here. His imaginary conversation partner hasn't said much, and yet he's calling him a foolish person. I wouldn't want to be in an argument with James. Here he refers to this person as being ridiculous for ever thinking that faith, that true saving faith, would be separated from action. He calls that type of faith dead as, and also useless. A cup with a hole in it is useless. A computer with no power is useless. A car with no gas is useless. Faith without works is useless. But we can turn that around as well. That true faith then must some, serve some purpose. It must be useful for some reason. It, it actually serves as a way to save us. So take a, he takes us to two examples of people who had true saving faith. And we can see what it is, what is the usefulness of true faith. Here, look at verse 21. The example he gives us is that of Abraham. Verse 21 says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. The story of Abraham is found in the book of Genesis. And we're told that Abraham was called by God to leave his home, leave his family, and to trust God. Actually, throughout Genesis, we hear a lot about how Abraham trusted God. He trusted God when he made promises to him. He, God made a promise to Abraham saying that one day I will give you offspring and your family will grow into this great nation and your family, this great nation of Israel, it's going to be a blessing to the rest of the world, all the nations of the world. Pretty extraordinary promise and Abraham believed God. It's a pretty amazing story. And yet Isaac here, or excuse me, James here takes us to a particular story, probably the most heart-wrenching story about James, about Abraham's obedience. Here he reminds us of the story about how Abraham was asked by God, told, instructed by God, to offer up his only son Isaac on the altar. That meant his only son would be killed. It's tragic and horrifying, but what happens is actually quite extraordinary. At the last moment, God provides a substitute for his son, yet Abraham acted in obedience, acted in faith. Abraham his faith was not a theoretical idea, something that he just simply affirmed at, at times. No, it dictated how he lived and how he obeyed God. You see, true faith, faith that can save us, is a faith that, that will lead us to obedience even when it's really hard. 
as we ask ourselves, you know, is, do we have true, authentic faith? Well, we've got to ask ourselves, is our faith producing obedience in us? Here, he wants us to see that true faith isn't useless. It's actually useful. It, it transforms us. It gives us power and strength and courage and conviction to act even when it's hard, to obey God even at times when we don't want to. His, this last verse that I just read a few moments ago, verse 24, it, it's, a, it's an interesting verse that sometimes people read out of context. He wrote in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Some people read that and think, oh, gosh, is he contradicting Paul, who taught that we are saved by faith alone? Again, we, we need to pause before we jump to any conclusions there and actually look at what he's saying in the context of his argument. He's saying that true faith is faith that will manifest itself in action. Dead faith, though, won't do anything. And thus, that's a faith that won't justify us, won't save us. The reformers used to say that we are saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. What, do you, what we mean by that is that it's faith that justifies us, but that faith is a faith that's transformative, that moves us, that causes us to actually obey God just as Abraham obeyed God. What's really incredible here is that James reminds us that for those who obey God, who have this true saving faith, just like Abraham, we're called friends of God. Friend, a friend is someone who likes to spend time with you, likes to hear from you, you know, puts up with you even when you're annoying. A friend is someone who cares for you and stands by you in difficult times. How incredible is it to think that you, a weak and flawed person would be counted among those who God calls friend. That's what true saving faith can do. It'll produce obedience in us, and it will allow us to stand before God one day as his friend. So true faith, it's not mere words that we say. It's not mere right thoughts that we have. True faith leads to obedience. Finally, we come to the last example that he gives us of, of true faith, and it's in the person of Rahab. And Rahab gives us the example that true authentic faith, it will, it will transform us to be more like Christ. And what that really looks like is that it'll transform our life into a life of service. As I read verse 25, notice the way in which Rahab served. Verse 25 says, And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Rahab lived in Jericho, a, t- a town, a city that was going to be uh, invaded by God's people and taken over by God's people. Joshua was leading uh, the people of God at the time, and he sent a couple of spies ahead into Jericho. And Rahab was a person who received these spies. She had heard about the God of the Israelites, and, and she believed. She acted in faith. We're told in the Old Testament that Rahab spoke these powerful words to the spies. She said, The Lord your God, he is a God in the heavens and in the heavens above and on earth beneath. She knew that God was a God who could be trusted, who was deserving of obedience, and here she is now serving these spies, even though it would cost her, even though it put her life on the line. True faith for Rahab manifested in in the actions of welcoming and providing them a safe haven and providing them an escape. For Rahab, she was an outsider. 
And yet, because she too had this saving faith, she was counted among the friends of God. She was counted, she was spared when Jericho, when the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. So for us today, the question that we're asking is, how can we know that we have true saving faith? Well, we can ask ourselves, how are we doing at being more like Christ and serving others? Do you welcome people in your home? Do you find yourself serving your coworkers, your family, your neighbors? This is fruit of saving faith. James makes his point one last time in verse 26. He makes it as clear as possible. He says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This past week, I, I was at a funeral, and funerals have some pretty stark images that are associated with them. A casket with a loved one in it who is no longer living, no longer breathing, no longer animated, moving or interacting. Think here, the imagery that James is trying to draw us to is to think about faith that has no action, no fruit, is a faith that's lifeless, is useless, it's unmoving. It should just be packed away in a casket and buried 10 feet under because it's of no use to anyone. At the highest level here, James wants you to see the uselessness of dead faith and the power and the beauty of true saving faith. For us today, I I hope that if you are someone who can look back and see faith at work in your own life, that it's, it's transformed you. It's more than words that you say. It's more than doctrine that you believe. But it's actually transforming you into living an obedient life to God, even when it's hard, a life of service to others. I want you to know that, that you are counted among the friends of God. That, that James, as he begins his letter in verse 2 of chapter 1, says that you can count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He says true saving faith means that you can weather the worst of storms. True saving faith will hold you steady True saving faith won't let you down on that day of judgment. Today, if that is true for you, I hope that you find yourselves in the season of Thanksgiving full of gratitude, with your mind amazed at what a gift God has given you in saving faith. James, well, I'll say God doesn't want it to be a guessing game. He doesn't want it to be a guessing game about whether you have saving faith or not. He wants it to be clear as daylight. And so he says, look, look at what your faith is producing. Is it alive or is it dead? For others this morning, I hope this text is, it's ex- maybe it's exposed faulty, dead faith in your life. I don't want you to end up with bogus, fake faith. Faith that won't hold up on that day of judgment. I heard this past week that some scientists have come up with a way of creating fake rhinoceros tusks. Pretty crazy, right? The reason for this, the reason this is significant is that rhinoceros tusks are actually really valuable. Rhinos are really rare, and so poachers get a lot of money when they kill them and sell the rhinoceros tusks. And What they're trying to do is flood the market with these fake tusks so that there's less reason to kill rhinos and Hopefully, they'll save the rhino population. What's crazy is that they were talking about how hard it is to distinguish between the real tusks and these fake ones that the scientists have created. 
It's almost nearly impossible, they say, to tell the difference. But here's the good news for us. That for us, true faith and dead faith, it's easy to tell the difference between the two of them. And so, for all of us this morning, if, if we've come to a place where we acknowledge, man, we, we've got the, fake, we got the fake stuff. We don't have the real deal. Well, the first step that we can take on that journey of faith is simply to acknowledge that we don't have true saving faith. To acknowledge our need for faith to be saved. Today we've spent our time answering this question, how can we know that we have true saving faith? But let me end with one final question. Maybe a question that go, may, maybe seems like a question we don't need to ask, but I think it's important. And it's, and it's the question, why should you care that you have true saving faith? I believe that behind our perfect Instagram accounts and Facebook photos, behind our LinkedIn profiles and the facades that we put up in, in public, there's a true you, a true self, a self that's probably not always easy to look at. But I think that authentic you Uh, The authentic me is a person who doesn't want to be obedient to God. Rather, I'd rather be the God of my own life, being the one that I'm obedient to my desires and my will. The authentic me is rather someone who doesn't want to be someone who serves others. No, I, I would prefer to be served. For those of us this morning who understand the authentic us, the authentic you, you'll realize the beauty and the power of true saving faith. That it is faith that comes into us and actually transforms our rebel hearts to be a heart that desires to obey God and to serve others and to love. It's not just words we say or doctrine we believe. I think on the cross, when we look to Christ, here, when we think of the cross, we realize that Christ knew our authentic selves. When we see the, the, the gruesomeness of the cross, it is a picture of the fact that God knows who you truly are. A person who has rebelled, a person who has, has turned away from him, selfish. The ugliness of the cross is, is actually a testimony to the fact that God knows the authentic you. And yet the cross is also this incredible picture of of God's love for you. That the cross is not just where we see a reflection of our need, our brokenness, but it's the cross that shows us God's love for you. That even as you think about the authentic you as being someone, how how could I ever be loved? And yet the cross is a place that we see the greatest act of love. So for us today, as we think about the authentic us, the authentic uh, person, that may be selfish, that may not want to obey God, we look to the cross for hope. That true saving faith is actually able to transform not just our head, not just our hearts, but our hands. That true saving faith will produce fruit in our life. Thank goodness that God is not a sleazy salesman trying to pawn off some fake product on us. No, he went to great lengths on the cross to make it possible for you to have the real deal, the real faith, that can transform you. It's faith that saves us. And God is the giver of that great gift. Let us worship him. Let us be thankful. Let us be confident in the gift that he's given us. Will you pray with me? Merciful Father, we we come before you today because we acknowledge our need to be saved, our need for saving faith. 
So, Father, I pray this morning that each one of us would, would acknowledge our need, but also would look to the cross to see a reflection of our authentic need, but also your great love for us. And I pray, Father, that you would give us saving faith, faith that's, that's tangible, faith that transforms the way we think, the way we live, the way we act. Father, there is nothing more powerful than saving faith, and it, faith can transform every person. And I give you thanks, Lord, that you're a God who gladly gives faith. So I pray that if anyone lacks faith this morning, that we would ask, trusting that you are the one who gives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.